Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Guys, could you please introduce yourselves, what you're currently working on, and if you were starting a company in cybersecurity, where would you be most excited to start a company? Yeah, this is uh, Jamie. I'm CTO at Endgame, and I'm working on uh, endpoint security technologies. I think the kind of the space that I'm most interested in right now is primarily around what can we do to automate a lot? There's a huge uh, kind of skills gap and hiring and retention problem right now in cybersecurity. So how can we make basically the space a lot easier for um, getting new people into the space and, and maybe perhaps even um, lesser skilled and, and maybe less people in general? So that's, that's some of the places I'm interested in. Cybersecurity is now on kind of the front page of, of, of many stories in, in our society. There's so much more, you know, when I grew up, there wasn't a lot of tech kind of dominating kind of the consumer market and so forth. And so security plays a, a much bigger role in our everyday lives. So that has led to the need for more skilled people in the space that can uh, help protect the data and so forth. That's obviously the amount of kind of education and skill and, and just generally trained people has dwarfed kind of the demand that we have in today's society. So I'm also working on uh, endpoint security, uh, a CrowdStrike. My main thesis at the moment is that cyber risk or cybersecurity in general should become securitized and somehow turn into a financially quantifiable risk. So if I were to start a company now, I would try to do it in the cyber insurance space. I think a lot of what we see right now that space is basically new wells, new ways to do sales of um, insurance products. But I think what's interesting there is figuring out just a very different kind of uh, product and capital structure to bring to bring to the market. Because cybersecurity somehow feels one of the few remaining risks that enterprise companies really don't have, for which like enterprise companies don't have a easy financial financial instrument to protect against and that seems counterintuitive whether we want it or not everything to to what jamie was saying everything both in consumer and enterprise will have computers involved meaning cybersecurity. so just insurance in general will be changed dramatically because of because of cybersecurity. so i think it's an exciting area to be in yeah so before before getting into some of the specific applications. Let's zoom out a little bit. You know, for the smart technologist out there who's looking to build a company in in cybersecurity or, or investors who are looking to determine opportunities, why don't we zoom out first and almost give a little market map? Like cybersecurity is obviously a big term, you know, enormous space. How do you sort of subdivide sort of the main subsectors within cybersecurity? You know, I'm you know been focused on endpoint for 21 years, and so it's a little bit. Can you describe what endpoint? Yeah, is so I think. You know, Vincenzo might have a slightly different definition with his background, but the endpoint for me is kind of the server, desktop, laptop, you know, that help us do computing in, you know, more of an enterprise environment. You know, Vincenzo has obviously a lot of background in the mobile space. And so, you know, mobile is an endpoint as well. You know, there's different 
degrees of focus there. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll define it as basically wearing your software or, or or basically code. Like for me, endpoint is anything that is a computing device where you can have uh, your security product on. I guess network security tends to be something you add to the enterprise like perimeter. So I think I think that's how I would split it. You know, if, as I think of the different categories, kind of cyber security, there's a lot of efforts been spent around network security, and then now we're seeing like a big explosion around the kind of endpoint security. And you know, there's identity management. There's you know, deception technologies that are kind of up and coming. There's, you know, orchestration platforms that have played a big role more recently in cybersecurity. So those are some of the general categories I think about when I'm looking at the space. How about you, Vincenzo? Similar. I think um, some of the ones that, uh, to, to, to partially to go back to the insurance topic, there is a lot of about like risk and compliance the access management and data security are also two relatively large areas. And then something that it's going maybe a bit out of fashion right now is uh, threat intelligence, or it's being like it's, it's going through some some major changes. And the idea around threat intelligence is, intelligence is that you as a company provide like private information. Uh, about specific threats that might uh, might target your your customers, and then there is a a vast space um, that it's application security, and that covers anything from vulnerability assessment to application firewalls to anything that improves the state of a code base, so reduces bugs or enforces some kind of secure, secure development lifecycle. That, that part of the market is interesting because it is part of security, but it's a very different audience and has very different economics and mechanics than the rest the rest of the space. And there is a bit on the sort of like consumer side for security, but it tends to be, at least today, it tends to be enterprise companies that then move down to consumers as opposed to uh, a pure consumer play in, in the field. Um, so we're seeing, like we used to see, I guess, Symantec. Now we're starting to see new endpoint security uh, companies going, trying to go more uh, into the consumer area. Totally. So in a, in a post where you talked about the opportunities insurance, you, you, you talked about addressing the market for Lemon's problem. Can, can you say a little bit about what that is and where you think the opportunity within insurance is where entrepreneurs should be focusing? Yeah, the problem you have with uh, security products in general is that it's hard to prove their effectiveness. And what's happening a lot these days is that companies are trying to come up with sort of like test environments uh, where you can do proof of values like tests to show that actually what, what you claim is true and you do actually i don't know prevent a specific type of breach or you do you do help with a given type of threat but obviously it's a quite a hard uh, problem to solve in general case because again the idea here is that you're preventing something from from happening rather, rather than making something uh, happen i think for the for the longest time because there had like we didn't have a lot of external forces in the market that would try to enforce a more analytical approach to the to the market of a um, market for lemon problem then a lot of security used to be sort of like a 
enterprise sales exercise where you would sell into an organization if you knew somebody that had buying power in that organization. I think insurance and regulation to some extent are putting pressure on the sector to show that in to show that actually we have measurable ways to improve the state of security for uh, for an individual company based on like based on what they buy and what, what kind of people they hire and so on and so forth. So I think insurance definitely plays a role in making security products more accountable in terms of quantifying their effectiveness. Have you found any products that are currently working on this approaches that you're excited about? So there is a company that I haven't invested in, but I think is moving like it's going towards that, which is called TACQ. The, the idea is that they will try to create again simulated environments in which they can they can reliably measure uh, the effectiveness of a given product based on the claims that the product has, and so that's that's definitely an interesting an interesting uh, company. I think there there are a lot of companies that are trying to come up with risk models for for cybersecurity with again the idea of making it easier for insurance companies to underwrite policies. But um, I haven't found anything yet that is um, particularly exciting because I think a lot of people are focusing on the external, like what can you automatically gather from outside of the company and are not focusing enough on how do you actually structure this insurance product for something that is ever changing, like a, a network of an enterprise company. And also, how do you account for a lot of the attacks you see today about like phishing credentials, stealing, and so on and so forth. Yeah, kind of back to the attack IQ model. I think it's interesting because I'm, I'm not an investor. Um, I, I know some of the investors there and some of the founders, but what I think is interesting about their model is they're, instead of evaluating necessarily the product from the vendor's perspective, they're trying to validate it from the buyer's perspective. So if you're a large corporation, you want to kind of evaluate your security stack, you can, you know, use Attack IQ to help you do that, uh, which is kind of turned the problem, I think, a little bit on its head. I think also in, in cybersecurity, another place that we haven't quite got it right yet is um, from evaluating the vendor itself. So kind of really independent third-party validation is difficult to do because there's the products themselves are expensive to get, you know, there's a lot of money involved. And so kind of that independent third-party validation is a difficult problem that I don't think has completely been solved either. Vincenzo, one thing you, you've looked a lot about is intersection between cybersecurity and crypto or, or blockchain. Can you talk about your interest there and where entrepreneurs and technologists should be focused? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of areas that are interesting, either at the intersection of those two things or where you can like literally apply things with learning in one industry to, to the other. Um, so a few a few in no particular order. I think the problem of custody in, in the crypto space is a problem that is quite familiar with the cybersecurity industry, especially for people that used to work in like highly classified environments. And so there's definitely quite a lot that can be can be learned in the cryptocurrency space from from that world. I think Vice versa, a problem that we failed to solve in cybersecurity, or, or at least we failed to solve properly in cybersecurity, and it's uh, and it seems like in the crypto 
cryptocurrency space is 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 doing much uh, much better is how do you deal and how do you bootstrap distributed trust without having any kind of central central parties or trusted parties and uh, I, I have clear example of that is our certificate authorities as time goes by one of the things that the cybersecurity industry is now adopting more and more is this idea that even applications um, and like websites and so on and so forth they all need to be signed um, and security models for our most operating systems now rely on um, this um, sort of like PKI infrastructure and as a result of that what we started to see a few years ago and it's still in progress is um, a lot of the certificate authorities would compromise on all sorts of, of very nasty security um, security incidents. The crypto space has figured out really clever ways to deal to deal with situations like, like that. I'm thinking something like Handshake. And so I think that would definitely be an area where um, cybersecurity could learn from, from crypto. Code quality is an area where bugs we've seen in the DAO or just Ethereum in general is because Solidity as a, as a programming language is fundamentally flawed. If somebody from the uh, cybersecurity world, specifically the application security world, was involved in the design choices behind Solidity, I think that uh, would have prevented a lot of the incidents we've seen in the past few years. So, so I think there are there are quite and uh, lastly the other thing that I find particularly exciting is that a lot of the I guess latest research in crypto in cryptography is happening because of cryptocurrencies and one one area that I, that I find extremely fascinating is uh, zero knowledge proofs. I think that uh, we've now gotten to the point where they are quite usable for a wide range of applications. And I think that the cybersecurity industry has a lot of catching up to do with the cryptocurrency world in terms of like, how do we use uh, zero knowledge proof for some of the problems that we have around information sharing and so on and so forth. So I think, I, I think that's another area that where a lot of cross pollination could happen between, between the two, between the two industries. Yeah, I, I think those are uh, in, in, interesting uh, spaces to think about, and how the technologies, um, maybe the the knowledge doesn't um, hasn't transferred yet uh, between the two camps. But I know Vincenzo is very interested in that. Kind of in, in relation to that, you know, kind of the, those central authorities, you know, kind of a spinoff of that concept from the certificate managers. Is we today we we still in many ways we have these kind of crunchy perimeters or, you know, solid perimeters and then kind of mushy interior. Like once you get authenticated, then you kind of have authentication throughout the entire domain of whatever that enterprise is doing. Place that is, you know, I think kind of maybe a little bit ahead of itself, but an interesting concept is uh, the authentication between microservices and these dynamic workloads. That's a company that um, I've been following a, a friend of mine founded it. It's called uh, Sidetail. I believe is how you pronounce it, but they're trying to authenticate microservices to one another instead of having, once you get authenticated in general, then you, any microservice can talk to any other microservice kind of thing, unless there's a firewall rule. So that's a, you know, an up and coming area that as we get more distributed computing, as, as Vincenzo was talking about, that might be an interesting area for investment and more uh, entrepreneurial uh, action there. I was just at Black Hat with uh, Vincenzo and, and corresponding with a 
more or less a CISO at a very, very large organization. Uh, he was kind of mentioning the Cambridge Analytica kind of problem that came up was in the news recently. And um, his organization shares a lot of data and brings in a lot of data and so on and so forth. And he was, you know, problem that he kind of raised to a bunch of us that were sitting around the table was like, how, how do I make sure if I give you my data that you don't then, you know, share it or, or share it in a way that's not approved in our original agreement with another third party. And so, you know, I think there's some, some things that we could potentially do if you keep the data in house, but like once it leaves your area, is there something that we could do, you know, today, I don't think blockchain yet solves that problem of kind of the confidentiality, but could we do something that would, you know, if you share that, I would know about it as the originating party of that data. Yeah. And so that's interesting. Yeah. And I think uh, to what um, Jamie was saying earlier, I think in general, we haven't really spent the identity management problem, neither at a like human level, meaning how do you identify somebody online, but um, but uh, but also at the computer level, like how do you make sure that like two machines are like are supposed to communicate and can can provide some some amount of assurance about their their identity and their their integrity, and I think doing that at scale as as proven. Uh, challenging at least so far and i think that's an area where like um maybe some of the lessons from from cryptocurrencies are are interesting and the other thing about cambridge analytica that it's quite interesting is that we are finding ourselves into a situation where a lot of the like what what seems to be more valuable is the data rather than the code and fundamentally we we are used to a world where we tend to protect the code rather than data to a large extent. So I think the, there is an open question of, well, what is the better way to uh, to deal with data? Like, how would you solve Cambridge Analytica? And one one obvious way would be to say, okay, we should we should have a App Store like model, whereby if you want to touch any of the or any of my data, I'm not gonna give the data to you. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna run arbitrary computation on my network. To deal to, to to do something with the data, which is very counterintuitive to people that have done security for a long time, because we we have this immediate connection in our head that arbitrary computation on somebody else's machine is bad. And so I think, uh, like dealing with the problem of metadata tracking or data tracking, that is that does not involve flipping the the equation between data and code, is an area where maybe. Uh, cryptocurrencies could play or lessons learned from cryptocurrencies could could play a role although i i think it's to, to what jamie was saying i don't think there is a clear solution out there yet yeah going back to what you know, james you were saying in your introduction about the the education problem uh, because you also wrote a little bit about you're interested in entrepreneurs who are tackling the continuous education problem can you talk a little bit about where you see opportunity there where you want to see innovation so i I'm actually an investor in this company. There's a company called Immersive Labs that tries to fix that problem. I think today in security, we have a couple of issues. One is there's just a lot of, of demand and very little supply for people that have a security background. And so what happens is if you're a company below like a Fortune 500, your security, like your security staff is probably not particularly well trained. And then what happens is 
you have one of two options, or one of three options. One, either you spend top dollars on talent, but and that probably does not make sense given given your size, or you outsource it to a sort of like security provider. Uh, they, they tend to be called managed security service providers, um, and basically those are big uh, organizations that do to whom you kind of like outsource your your cybersecurity. Or what you do is you hire people that don't necessarily have a security background, and then you, you sort of like try to bring them up to speed. I think this, this last this last group is the most promising one from a, from a um, security education standpoint. And also more in general, I think we, we find ourselves in a interesting space right now where a lot of the security that we're used to is changing significantly, partially because of cloud adoption, but partially because um, sort of like secu- software vendors are taking security more seriously, which means that where we do security and on what we do security changes will change dramatically. And so I think there is a there is a need for everyone, even like veterans in the field, to stay up to date. The the ability to have a sort of like continuous learning platform is I I, I think at, at least for now is absolutely uh, necessary. And what this company is doing specifically is they do capture the flag style contest to see to make sure that. Uh, you're actually learning concept in a practical way. I, I think I think that area where like you try to give people a measurable and concrete set of skills is is particularly needed in the in the industry uh, right now. Yeah, and just uh, to touch on kind of that that managed security service model, it, it's been around for a while. I would say there there's you know maybe we're seeing a little bit more appetite for it. Of recent, there's a lot of there's some of the larger players like a, a Dell SecureWorks or a, a Symantec or something like that that have been doing it for a, a good number of years. But you know, kind of looking around the market, there's there's probably another twenty or so boutiques smaller that have begun you know over the last two or three years in this space. And you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think there's a certain appetite for it even in corporations that are you know have a lot of revenue where they want to have the best people that they can afford and at the same time they want to give them the most challenging interesting problems that are kind of pertinent to the organization and so some of the outsourcing that we may see will be to automate and get rid of some of the more mundane tasks in in cybersecurity and some of the things that perhaps should be a little bit easier to do and that way they can still challenge their existing staff and keep them excited about the job and not have to hire necessarily um, quite as many people if they can find a good partner on the outside. Um, we saw this, you know, at I worked at Mandiant for a number of years and we saw that in um, some of the managed services that they provided where, you know, if if you would look at these corporations that were the customer, you know, some of them were definitely able to afford and and hire and and have the very best talent possible because of their um, revenue and so forth. But they decided to specialize in what they did and instead, you know, outsource some of their security tasks, which, you know, it's interesting and kind of back to what uh, Vincenzo was talking about with kind of your risk model and so forth. That, you know, obviously changes the equation a little bit because in some of those scenarios, you're, you know, in talking about the 
the compute going to the data. In this case, a lot of these uh, managed uh, security providers, the, the data actually goes to them. So you're maybe you're you have to have perhaps a little bit more risk tolerance, or definitely make sure that you know you're in compliance with um, things like GDPR and so forth. Jamie, I want to ask you know if you ran a you were 100 focused on running a fund, you know, focused on cybersecurity investment investing. I want to ask. You know, what your thesis would be, but sort of as a pre-question to that, I'm curious, you know, because you've been you know, in space for a couple decades plus, how, how do you sort of contextualize the, the current era? Is this like the golden age of cybersecurity startups? I mean, given sort of the surge of, you know, data security breaches in last year, Equifax, Cambridge Analytica, others, how do you sort of contextualize this current moment as it relates to the, the past two decades sort of for the opportunity? First off, I, I think I'm the worst person to ask about in a kind of cyber invest because I've been in it so long, I'm pretty much a convention about it all. But um, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you some of my thoughts about it. I think that, you know, this kind of surge and, you know, breaches and so forth, I think it, it does present a lot of opportunity for some new ideas to come into the space and, and you know, to have very successful uh, companies, build very successful companies. We shouldn't be surprised by this, you know, as just been in the space 21 years and as things have progressed you know we talked about earlier kind of like now our computing and and digitalization of our data and and so forth is like prevalent in everything we do rather go to the doctor or you know have a, a easy pass for the roads and so forth like there's just so much information out there and it affects our lives every day and you know both nation states and you know, cyber criminals or what have you have identified that as a great opportunity for them as well, right? So they're, you know, making more and more strides in order to monetize that data and so forth. And they've come up with some, you know, ingenious ways uh, to do that. So I think it is a, you know, maybe a, a maybe the golden era, perhaps, of cybersecurity. Um, however, you know, nothing's new under the sun. Like, you know, we used to call Deception networks, you know, honeypots, you know, a decade ago or whatever. There isn't a whole lot of brand new ideas. There's definitely iterations on the ideas to make them better. And so I think one, you know, cautionary tale is like you, if you're an entrepreneur or really even investors, it's, there's a lot of competition in the space. So, and it doesn't really matter. Like you'll see, you know, I think, um, Maybe four years ago or so, we saw like deception networks kind of pop up on the, on the you know, horizon. And now I could probably name about 10 that do it. Maybe there's, there's probably a lot more that, you know, will show up at RSA or somewhere next year. So it, it, it is a crowded cybersecurity in general is a crowded market, regardless of what you do. You might think it's totally new, but, uh, you know, as soon as. You announce usually there's at least three other competitors there immediately, um, so that's you know makes it interesting for both an entrepreneur and investor. But maybe that's just because I'm old and in the space. I was going to say um, I think in, like to a large extent cybersecurity tends to be an execution game rather than like a novelty game. You rarely see something on the market that it's mind-blowingly novel what you do see is something that uh, as a concept has existed for a long time but then finally is packaged up in a um sort of like very usable a uh, very usable way and i think uh on a on a pot 
are a very good example. Uh, there is this com- uh, this uh, company called Canary that effectively has Onipods, but they're packaged in a very simple to install hardware device that you just drop in your perimeter. Um, and that has driven adoption, adoption mass. So the, the ease of use has driven uh, adoption massively. I would say, so like when, when I look at companies to, to invest, I think one of the mistakes uh, a lot of in, um, entrepreneurs make in, in this sector is they have an hypothesis as of whether what they do would actually solve a problem, but they, and they, th- they think a lot about building that and they don't think enough about building a way to actually prove that their hypothesis is true, which goes back to the proof of value problem um, that there is. That, that, that said, I do think that we are in, in a golden in a golden age for security for a simple reason. I think we are, we've finally reached the point where the vast majority of the population has spent a significant amount of their time online, which means that all the problems you used to have maybe, I don't know, hundred years, well, hundreds of years ago, in the physical world are now popping up in this, let's call it the cyber world or, or the internet. And so as such, as we've gone through many decades and, and centuries of figuring out how do we solve crime on the street and how do we prevent, I don't know, pirates and that sort of stuff. All of that is coming up in a different shape in on the internet. And so from that standpoint, I do think that we are uh, in, in a golden age for, for cyber, but it's extremely competitive to what, to, to Jamie's point. Yeah. Uh, Vincenzo, what would be your thesis if, if you were solely focused on a cybersecurity fund in terms of, you know, besides what we talked about, where would you be most excited or, or where thematically would you be excited and where thematically would you say, I don't want to touch any companies that are doing this or, or in this space or this is just too, either a solved problem or too overcrowded or too difficult? Yeah, so I would in touch at the moment. One is endpoint security. And the reason why I wouldn't touch it is one is because it's extremely crowded and two, because the new incumbents are of the smart kind. And so like like right now, if you look at companies like Endgame or, or CrowdStrike, they are sort of like the, the new incumbent and they're in this situation where like they're eating older companies lunch like i don't know semantic mccafee and so on and so forth but at the same time they're still in that sort of like startup like stage where they can fend off competition really well so i think getting into anything endpoint is is almost impossible at this point the other area that i would be really wary of is um, network security especially traditional network security because i think what Docker uh, and containers um, plus the cloud is doing to uh, networks will significantly change the shape of uh, an enterprise perimeter. And now we are in this hybrid phase where it hasn't happened yet, but it's definitely going to happen. So the product you will deploy, like the product you will build today for a fully sort of like cloud container, uh, containerized world uh, it's not going to sell well now, but if you build a, a product network security that sells well today, you won't you won't be able to survive tomorrow. So I think I think that's that's an area that I'm I'd be concerned concerned about. And then in terms of like, as you mentioned earlier, Vincenzo, I think like kind of the the threat intelligence space is is kind of on the decline. 
you know, I think it makes a great addition to a company, you know, to help like, kind of enrich the data that you already have and, and provide some insights around it. But strictly a, a pure play, like we're going to sell you a list of bad hashes and IP addresses and domain names isn't really, it isn't really as viable now because we've seen it commoditize and kind of prices driven to the ground. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think on the, on the positive and, and the other thing I would say about threat intelligence is that what, what it turns out that most companies don't actually have much of a use. Like it doesn't matter whether they know that like North Korea hacked them or is about to hack them or, or might hack them because that's, that's not actionable enough. So I think that the main problem that a lot of the threat intelligence companies have is that it's very hard to make their insight actionable. And also, to a large extent, everyone ends up being, uh, ends up having the same insights. So it's, it's hard to uh, differentiate yourself. I think, I think on the, on the positive side, aside from what we talked about earlier, so the, um, cyber insurance, um, the education and, and, and blockchain slash, uh, security. I think one, one area that I find promising is, Anything related to um, identity management and just simplification of some of the infrastructure that we have that has been around for 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 decades now. I mean, we've talked we've talked quite a quite a lot about uh, sort of like PKIs and certificate authorities, but in general, I think stuff like Kerberos or Active Directory are systems that every organization has. And they're extremely complicated to, uh, to, to manage. They're the source of a lot of, a lot of data breaches. And so I think it's something that allows an enterprise to completely do away without them, um, would be, would be quite, quite an interesting area to, to, to look more into. But it's, it's a, it's a really tough problem to crack. And I don't know if Jamie, you have, um, an area that you think is particularly interesting. Yeah, right now I'm, I'm looking a lot at kind of those, uh, that managed space, a, a little bit of the, uh, educational side, but a little bit probably more toward the managed space and how can we make that better? Because I think it's an execution game, as Vincenzo was speaking to earlier, where the large incumbents really haven't executed well. And so I, I think it's interesting, you know, it's, it's a little bit more techy, but, um, I think it's an interesting space. Yeah. And one last thing I would, I would add is the anti-fraud space, I think will soon become uh, very interesting because we are seeing a lot of improvements in uh, AI slash machine learning, whereby it's going to be uh, quite easy to fake stuff like voice or video and so on and so forth. And how, how we deal with those problems is an open question. And also kind of related to this, a lot of the Cambridge Analytica type of events show us that cybersecurity is partially moving away from problems about computers to problems about people's psychology. And, um, and as an industry, we are absolutely unprepared to deal, to deal with that. So it, it, it feels like an area where there will be a lot of work and a lot of like uh, interesting action. Yeah. If you guys had to, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the past and the present, but if you had to project out to the future a little bit, whether it's, you know, five years out, 10 years out, maybe even, you know, maybe even 20 years out. How do you sort of see the, the space evolving over time and the opportunities evolving over time? Project out a little bit, paint a picture for, for what you expect to see or what we might see. 
Yeah, I'll just uh, pick up kind of what Vincenzo was saying. You know, if if we if we play out kind of that scenario, like where you can fake data, right? Like if I can get a video of you for five minutes or 20 minutes, and then I can create any video I want of you saying anything I want. That has some really interesting implications for our society. You know, we, we saw what can happen when kind of data is manipulated to verificate kind of the public opinion, right? With the Facebook uh, things and so forth uh, during the, the election. And so, if you know, as was maybe alluded to, kind of this video and audio in kind of a almost a real time manner that looks seamless, and then you know, how do we know this person really said that or and things like that? I think it's that is a whole new kind of I you know quote unquote identity type of problem. How do we know that this really happened? So whereas you know when we first when radio and things first came on the scene you know, it was amazing because public figures could address, you know, their entire country, perhaps the world and, and galvanize, you know, kind of people around a, a common cause. But if we, you know, now that the technology is advancing, if you live in more, is, I don't know if it'll be five years, but that's kind of a, a maybe a strange new world where security would, would have to challenge or conquer a lot of new challenges. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think, so the other area that, I think will be quite interesting to to watch and witness is I think we're getting much better at securing individual components, but we're starting to get very close to like a basically combinatorial explosion of stuff that is connected to each other. And so when you look, when you start to look at the latest data breaches, what you see is that it tends to be a few years ago, what you would normally see is, oh, there is an exploit for a browser, and that exploit for a browser compromises a machine, and then from that machine, they sort of like do what, in I guess, in the industry in industry terms, is called lateral movement, meaning they figure out what other machines nearby in the network they can compromise and so on and so forth. A lot of what we're seeing uh, these days is basically you compromise one of the weaker links in your supply chain or whatever else that is still connected to you. And then you sort of like escalate from there. So I think we will see a lot more of these attacks where you attack very, like you attack targets that have no utility to you by in themselves, except uh, the, their privileged access to the organization that you actually care about. That world will look very different from what we're used to defend against today. Uh, that's definitely an area that seems interesting. And also, back to what Jamie was saying, I think what we are unprepared to deal with is the concept that what we see and hear is not true. And so anything that deals with that is going to be, um, like dealing with that is going to be an ongoing concern and problem that we literally have no idea how to tackle. On the, on that ominous note, <laughs> thank you guys. This has been a, this has been an awesome, awesome episode. Where can people find you or learn more about your work online? If, if, you know, what's one thing you want entrepreneurs, investors to take away from this podcast, whether it's a summary of something we've discussed or, or something we, we haven't yet mentioned? I'm kind of pretty easy to find online. You can Google me. I have a Twitter account, LinkedIn, so on and so forth. I would say, you know, to maybe to the entrepreneurs out there, you know, maybe this wasn't the most encouraging uh, talk. But I think, you know, it's probably been said on 
podcast before, but, you know, I think being a practitioner, like doing this every day, you know, even if you're kind of a beginner is a great place to start, be the operator who's trying to solve security problems. And then I think as you get exposed to more and more of those issues, you know, that's what will prompt, you know, your unique idea or your, you know, how you can execute better than some of the incumbents, you know, by solving a real problem that's been a been a pain point for yourself. So, you know, I'm a big believer in kind of, you know, on the job experience and so forth. And so I think by being that operator or security person, like more from a, a management policy operation side of things is a great place to start before you set out to go build something. Yeah. For me, um, similar, um, I have a Twitter account. I'm pretty easy to find online on LinkedIn. I think in terms of advice to entrepreneurs is I keep going back to what I was saying earlier. I think security is too much of a, of a market for lemons. So I would focus on building something, on building something that can be measured. And I would also focus a lot on figuring out you build the, the product, also building the proof. And for, for investors, I think the what is counterintuitive in security is that what is needed today in the enterprise, it's likely going, not going to be needed five years down the line. And so I think the areas that are most promising are like, I, I guess a method that is good to just to find what's promising is to look at what is the current latest state of the art as far as, um, I guess, research or uh, software development goes and what is the state of enterprise security. And if you find an area where the current state of the art has not improved and enterprise security has that problem today, that's probably a good place to invest for the next five to 10 years. A, a concrete example is investing today in a company that stops software exploits is probably not a good idea because we've gotten to a point when you look at modern Windows or, or, or iOS where writing an exploit is still feasible, but it's it's economically unfeasible for the vast majority of actors. So a company that, that solves that like tail risk probably doesn't have enough customers to, to, to run a real business. But you wouldn't be able to, to tell that today just by looking at the state of enterprise security and the state of, and what you see in the news about data breaches, because it's all about like exploit and wanna cry and all of that. Totally. Guys, thank you for coming on. This has been a great episode. Thanks a lot. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 